wish, and if not, uh, would you please pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that you would come and take that which is often uh, misunderstood or misinterpreted or misrepresented. I pray that you would make it abundantly clear this morning. And I pray that you would make it abundantly clear unto the building up of your saints and to the conversion of those who don't know Jesus. I pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, for, for whatever reason, over the course of my life, I've, be, I've, I've always been interested in... Uh, how the brain works, how we remember things. And about a year or so ago, uh, I found a book. I just happened across it and loved it. it was the, the title of the book was called Moonwalking with Einstein. Moonwalking with Einstein. And basically, it was a journalist who became interested. He was sent to, to report on the World Memory Championships. And he, when he got there, he was sort of overwhelmed because all the peoples were a little bit, like, wacky, sort of. But what he realized about the people at the World Memory Championships, they weren't geniuses. They just had a lot of good tricks for memorizing things. And when I talk about memorizing things, I'm talking about how many decks of cards can you memorize in five minutes? Or how many digits can, out, out to, can you memorize pi out to? Or they might read a poem that no one has ever or, or read before, or no one has ever read, yeah, I guess no one's ever read it. And they have to memorize it. And whoever can recite it back the best does it. So then there's all these tricks. And, you know, I've known some of them for a while. One, one thing that you do is associate the, a wild image to something you're trying to remember. So if you want to remember something, because our brains work by way of images for the most part. So if you want to remember something, you attach an image to it. It works with people's names. You meet someone and you learn their name and you attach a wild image to it and you remember it. Like, that's how I remember some of your names. Um, I can't tell you the images that are associated with that all the time, but nonetheless, um, that's one. The other way is to, to sort of hook things together. Like if you want to remember a long list of things, like so if you want to remember the piano, and then after that comes the table, and after that comes the lectern, you might think of a piano sitting down and eating dinner at a table. And then you would think of a table maybe standing up to preach from a lectern, and you hook things together. And so as, but just about the time I was reading that book is when I started studying Revelation. And as I was reading Revelation, I wondered if John wants us to remember this. Because the whole book of Revelation is basically two big things, if you're talking stylistically. It's wild images that are hard to forget. And one thing hooks into the next thing. So, for example, I've told you a number of times that it's hard to, one of the things that makes Revelation hard to preach is because if you're going to preach chapter 4, you almost necessarily have to preach chapter 5 beside it because they're connected. But the pro, that, that leads to the next problem, whereas if you want to preach chapter 5, you almost necessarily have to preach chapter 6 with it because they're connected together. But if you want to preach chapter 6, you've got to go to chapter 7. If you want to preach chapter 7, it's hooked into chapter 8, and so on and so forth. So part of me wonders if the reason that the Revelation is, is sort of out there is to make it more memorable. You see, a lot of it is symbolic, but it's symbolic for a reason. We've been looking up to this point. We've, we finished last week chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And uh, the reason I tell you that is to, to remind you that it's connected to chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, 
It was the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's how we started on Mother's Day. You're welcome, right? Um, Four horsemen of the apocalypse on Mother's Day. And then after you talk about the horsemen of the apocalypse, you have the martyrs who are under the throne saying, how long, how long until there is justice? How long until you avenge our blood? And God says, wait a little longer. And then immediately, it seems, he actually starts bringing justice upon the earth. And people who do not believe experience the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And I've told you that in this section, for the next several chapters, what you have is the story of all of human history told over and over and over again. Each time, it gets a little bit more intense. And so when, when in chapter 6, when the Lamb breaks the first seal, that is the beginning of what the end is for the world, ultimately. And so last week, we looked at chapter 7, and you remember, you can't understand 7 unless you look at 6 with the last thing that was said in chapter 6. As, as judgment was being brought down and the mountains were falling and the, the unbelieving people were crying out for rocks to fall down on them, the last question was this, if you remember, who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb? Is there anyone who can stand? And if you remember, I told you, I think John was, was probably writing that and he thought, well, this is a little heavy. Maybe I should encourage people because you remember we also talked about the fact that the church doesn't escape tribulation and trials and suffering. The church is protected through them. And so John in chapter 7 answers the question, who can stand the day of God's wrath? Who can stand the trials, tribulations, and suffering? Who can stand that? And if you remember, the, the answer was very simply the 144,000. And everyone, of course, knew what that meant, and so it was a very short sermon. Um, remember we talked about the fact that this number, 144,000, was symbolic. For one, it was a complete number, and ultimately it stands for the complete number of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, that God knows in his mind an exact number of people he will redeem. Revelation chapter 15 calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. So the church, before they go through this, are sealed. They're protected because God has actually chosen them out. And that leads to, to the question of chronology. Remember I told you that the biblical writers are not always, and almost never, frankly, concerned with chronology. How does, does one thing follow another in order? And so what you really see is that chronologically speaking, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 happens, and then chapter 6, the wrath of God and then what we're going to look at today. So in other words, before the, the, the end, when all the things are coming down and the horsemen are wreaking vengeance on the earth, God's people are sealed and protected. But also it's important, remember I told you in the Old Testament, you only count things, especially in this context, when you're getting ready to go to war. You only take a census when you want to find out how many soldiers you have. And so this is probably a census and it's probably the church getting prepared for war. In chapter 14, when the 144,000 are brought up again, it says that those 144,000 specifically are all men and they're all virgins. In other words, they're soldiers who are purified for war, like you would be in the Old Testament. So the church is not just sealed and protected. The church is an army that engages. So there's some sense the way John encourages us in the first half of chapter 7 is saying, you know what? I know it's hard out there, and it will get harder. You are sealed. Nothing can hurt you. Nothing can harm you, spiritually speaking. You might lose your life, 
but no one can touch your soul. Now turn around and go back out and engage the world. You're God's army. Go do it. And we talked about the fact that chronologically, when you talk about what comes before, what comes after, chapter 7, the first part and the second part, the first part, verses 1 through 8, are what we call the church militant. The church that is engaging right now. The second part that we're going to look at today is the church triumphant. And to give you an easy breakdown of that, basically the church militant is the church on earth right now. And the church triumphant is the church in heaven. That's at the end of the year, our congregational meeting, oftentimes we'll read through those who have entered what? Those who have entered the church triumphant. So why is that important? Because John is encouraging us two ways. On one hand, he's encouraging us with, with the fact that the battle is hard now, and yet we're still supposed to engage. But also there is something waiting for those who have trusted Jesus, that it will not always be this hard. Right? If you remember, I, I found a, the, one of my favorite quotes. It says that everything is, in the end, everything will be okay. And if it's not okay, then it's not the end. The second part of chapter 7 says, here's what okay looks like in the end. So that's what we'll be looking at today. So I actually have an outline for you today. We're going to look at three things. The immensity of the gospel first. The second thing we'll look at is the great tribulation. Notice the quotes there. And finally, third, the hope of heaven. So when we talk about the immensity of the gospel, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 9. Oh. There we go. In verse 9, John says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Here, remember I told you, oftentimes in the book of Revelation, what you hear is John, he'll say something like this. He'll say, I, I heard one thing, and then I turned and I saw another thing. I heard the lion from the tribe of Judah had conquered, and when I looked, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And here, even if you didn't believe a word I said about the 144,000, what you have to believe is that the 144,000 equals, in this passage, people without number from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Because he said, I heard the 100, uh, 144,000 of God's people were sealed, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, and so forth. He says, and I looked, and behold, a great army. Remember I told you it's a census, and it's about God's people going to war. The word multitude in this passage could just as easily and just as validly be translated as army. So he says, I heard a census, and I turned, and behold, a there was a great army there. And where did they come from? The first thing you see when you look at the extent of the gospel, he says a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. And of course that goes back, we talked about it before, it goes all the way back to Abraham. Someone asked me during the week this week, I thought if one person asked, more people probably have the question, someone asked, when did Abraham become Jewish? And the answer is, never Abraham, remember God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and he said, you will, be a father, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
And he said, your descendants will be without number. And then in chapter 17, he says, you will be a father of many nations. Now Israel came from, descended from Abraham, but those who have faith also descend from Abraham. And those who descend from Abraham are people from every single nation in the world. What's interesting here, by the way, is the word tribe, where it says every nation and tribe. The word tribes in the Bible is only ever used for Israel. In other words, you never hear about the tribes of the Philistines or the tribes of the Canaanites. The tribes is almost a technical term for the nation of Israel. So on one hand, everyone I've ever read believes that this is all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles alike, and yet here they are all numbered together as this great, fantastic army. And so the gospel extends to every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just white people, not just suburban people, not just urban people, not just Asian people, not just black people, every single tribe, tongue, and nation. And we've been, when I was on study leave, I was working on vision for our church. And I really believe that vision is not a preferred future, but vision is a, is a promised future. And what is the promised future for the church of God? It's right here. The promised future that you and I will experience is worshiping in a context with people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. And the question is, how do we get that way? The good news for our church is that in spite of the fact that that we tend to be mostly white, we're surrounded by every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're in the most diverse community in the state of Washington. And so the question is, we either engage that or we sort of pull away. And you remember when we looked at the churches, what happens when you pull away? You sort of get spanked. Now the interesting thing, to engage the, the world with the gospel here in the United States is actually relatively easy. I just got a note before I walked, in, before I walked out here about a, the, a buddy sent me about a Nigerian church being bombed. You see, it's hard to be a Christian almost any other place in the world. If you've been there, you know that. But here it's really not that difficult. How do we engage the world? Well, the easiest thing to do is you take the low-hanging fruit. What do I mean by that? We're doing VBS sign-ups right now, Vacation Bible School, and I would just beg you, if you are in our church and you have children in your neighborhood that don't know Jesus, that you would bring them that you would bring them in. A lot of times in church, people look at Vacation Bible School and people say, whew, that's good, I get a half day off, I put my kid in Vacation Bible School, I'll pick them up and everything's copacetic. And why don't we invite our neighbors? I can tell you why I don't. It's because I'm selfish and lazy. In other words, I think to myself, okay, if I go talk to that person... They might have some problem and they talk a long time and it's going to take a long time. Or if I invited them to church and they came to church and they became Christians and then they had all these issues I had to work through, I just don't have time for that. So in order to be a good pastor, I have to not tell anyone about Jesus. Isn't that how you're a good Christian? Don't tell people about Jesus so you can get to church and make sure you're volunteering for this, that, and the other thing. You see, in the rest of the world, oftentimes, you're called to give up your life. In the United States, guess what? You're also called to give up your life. It just might look different for us. Mostly, it means bearing inconvenience, which isn't that hard, is it? You know, last night, I was at graduation, and I got a little bored, and so I was watching, looking up with one of my daughters. We, we love looking up the sort of the um, memes that are popular now, like first world problems. 
My favorite is Bad Luck Brian or Creepy Wonka. But the first world memes, you know, it's picture, basically a picture of a lady crying and people just make up captions. You know, like, the television is on the wrong channel and I left the remote in the chair. And she's crying over it, you know. Or I watched the whole show and, and then I realized after it was recorded I could have fast-forwarded through the commercials. We are so coddled sometimes. And so I would encourage you, are we engaging the world around us? Are we engaging the world with the gospel? That's what we're called to do. And we're called to bring in people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Because the gospel, the extent of it, is to all peoples. And it's bigger than we can imagine. You know, I went to Ethiopia a few months ago. And this is another confession. I showed up, I thought I was going to be training uh, Somali radio broadcasters through an Amharic translator. And they came and told me before, oh, by the way, there's someone here from the, the Hafar language group and the Goragi language group. And I said, that's cool, that's cool. I had no idea who those were. In other words, I'd never even heard of them. And I'm supposed to know that kind of stuff. So imagine our surprise when we get to heaven and to when we see who's there. But imagine the glory and the joy. You see, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says the kings of the world bring their glory in. We will experience that. What else is going on in this passage? Notice what it says. It says, I saw people from every nation and tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne. That is huge. Because remember the last question in chapter 6 is who can stand? And John says, well, those who are sealed who are standing. And at the end of all time, he looks and he says, and I saw, and guess what? They were standing. They were actually standing before the throne of God. The, the they weren't cringing, they weren't afraid, they weren't nothing. They were actually standing before the throne, worshiping. And they were wearing white robes, and they were waving palm branches. And what does that mean? Most commentators think that that's an allusion to, to Roman victory, that when Roman generals would win, they would put on a white robe and walk through a town, and people would, you know, say, Hail Caesar, hail whatever. And get, I think most commentators are wrong. Because it sounds an awful lot like something else. And John, when you want to err on the side of, of where should I go, John almost always goes to the Old Testament. And the other place where you see people dressed like this, where you see people waving palms in the Old Testament, is in the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, God says, gather the people together, build booths, and wave branches, and worship and celebrate. What are they celebrating? And he says here in Leviticus 23, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you see, the gospel not only goes to all nations, but it actually goes sort of forward and backward in time. That what was happening in Israel was, was not just a shadow, but it, it, those who acted by faith in reality were, were part of God's church. And that you and I, if you're a Christian here, you're part of a body that's not just big this way, but it's big up and down and back and forth as well. In Exodus chapter 15, again, remember it says that the redeemed sing two songs there, not one. They sing a new song, and they sing the song of Moses. Remember that one? I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Everybody! <laughs> In other words, what we sing about in heaven is not just the fact that Jesus delivered us, 
but that Jesus had delivered all people from all times that would trust him over the course of the history of redemption. And the book of Exodus becomes more important as we get into the book of Revelation. So here we talk about the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles is where they commemorated God's dwelling with them, that they were in God's presence, that they dwelled in tents, but God dwelled with them in a pillar of fire by night and smoke by day. As we get into chapter 8, the plagues are going to be revisited. And I think I heard them practicing. I think we're going to get to sing those again. I love singing the plagues for some reason. So where does that take us after that? You go from them waving palm branches to the grace of the gospel. Notice verse 10. He says, And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you notice what you'll never hear in that heavenly context is people standing around singing, look at all the things that I've done. Look at all the greatness that I bring to the table. Look how good and moral I was my whole life. That would be a horrible song. What they sing in heaven is salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. It is completely contingent and dependent upon His grace. You know, I was sitting at my daughter's high school graduation last night and I couldn't help but think of my, my poor mother. My high school graduation so wounded my mother that she talks about it to this day. And how did it wound my mother? Well, she was under the impression that I was never really applied myself. And I think in retrospect she might be correct. But it had also to do with my name. You see, the, uh, my last name is Alan. And so those of you who with, with names at the end of the alphabet who say, oh, people with Alan always get to go first. We bear a special burden that other people don't bear. And here's that burden as applied to my mother at my high school graduation. You see at the baccalaureate night where they hand out awards to people, in the very front row, you had like the genius, 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 physics award winner, math club captain, valedictorian, Alan. The valedictorian is a wonderful guy. His name is Rob Cordell. Sweet guy. But over the course of the night, you know, they would say, and the scholarship for being the most brilliant human being ever alive, Rob Cordell. And he would have to go forward, and he would get like a plaque or a paper or something. And he came back, and after three or four times, he looked over and he said, can you hold this when I go up? I'm a nice guy. I said, of course I'll hold it. And a couple more, so he would get his award and he would come back and I'd hand it back to him. And after a couple more times, it just became awkward. And I said, why don't you just let me keep that stuff for you? And so by the end of the night, I was sitting there within my lap, a stack of awards and plaques were a foot high. None of them belonged to me. And my mother talks about that. I can't, I still can see you holding all of someone else's awards. You didn't get anything. You never applied yourself. Now, what would, it, what would it be like? How amazing would it be if after the ceremony, Rob said to me, Tommy, you know what? I've been thinking about it. Why don't we trade places? You don't deserve anything. You never even went to school. I deserve everything. Harvard, Yale, Stanford, a bunch of other places I never heard of. Here, you take all of that, and I'll just take everything you've got. Nothing. 
You see, if you get that picture in your head, that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus is. That's exactly how the grace of Jesus works. Jesus says, here's the deal. I have earned everything, all glory, all honor, all wisdom, all power, all righteousness, everything there is to have, I not only earned, but I had it just in spades by virtue of who I am. Why don't we trade places? I'll give you all of my righteousness and everything that I have, and you give me all of your nothing, all of your sin, everything that you have. If you get that, you understand that salvation is by grace, and you can understand why in heaven they don't sing about themselves. They sing salvation is from our Lord and from the Lamb. You see, the extent of the gospel is not just to nations, it's not just to to the Old Testament and New Testament, but it's to you if you would embrace Jesus. Are you willing to accept all of His stuff? Are you willing to trade places with Him? Because He is. Are you going to let that go by? Where does that take us next as we continue deeper into heaven? Well, the great tribulation, which there's no controversy of. So look at verse 13. John asks, these questions are asked in verse 13. One of the elders, I'm skipping, by the way, the angels singing. We've talked about that before. He says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So John is looking and we've noticed from earlier passages that maybe he looked confused. Maybe he didn't know what was going on. And one of the elders said, who are these? Where have they come? And I love what John does because he knows the Old Testament so well. If you're smart, when an angel asks you a question, you always deflect. In other words, remember in in, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, when the angel came and said to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these dry bones live? There's a valley of dry bones. And what did he say? He didn't say, well, you know, maybe, maybe not, or I don't think so. He did the only smart thing. He said, you know. John does the same thing here. He's overwhelmed. He's looking out at this multitude without number. They're dressed in white and are waving palms and are singing, Salvation belongs to our Lord. Do you know who they are and where they came from? You know. You know. And the elder, basically, the implication is that that's the right answer. And so what does he say to him? He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what do we know about this thing called the great tribulation? For one, if this is really a picture of the end of time, when, when the church is triumphant and they're all standing around Jesus worshiping, then every Christian at some level has to have gone through, quote, the great tribulation. Everybody. So what are we to make of that? Well, just on a technical level, the word tribulation, at least in the book of Revelation, is never used specifically. It's always used in general terms. In other words, it's not used to describe a specific period of time where believers will be taken out of the world and all that stuff. Remember, it talks about when the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God clash. And so how is it that every believer experiences the great tribulation? Well, there's a sense in which as the the horsemen of the apocalypse are released and judgment begins to happen and bad things happen in the world from the time of Jesus' ascension till now, believers have never been whisked up out of it. They've always been part of that. They're not rescued from trials and tribulation, but they're rescued through trials and tribulation. But in this sense, how how has every believer experienced the great tribulation? tribulation well in one sense it's if they trusted jesus because the great tribulation the great tribulation started at the cross in fact the greatest tribulation started at the cross 
Because if you want to talk about where the wrath of God is visited, and the wrath of God is actually poured out, the one place where we know every bit of God's wrath was poured was on the cross of Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, vicariously, you have experienced the great tribulation. Let me me tweak that a little bit. Jesus experienced the great tribulation and then switched places with you. So there's a part of us where we might have to go through trial and we might have to go through tribulation, but at the end of time, all of us will have come through the great tribulation, which is the, the battle between this kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God that happened from the beginning of time till now. What about the promise of rest as we come to it, close to an end, I think? I thought I'd show you that this is what I look like on Sunday afternoon. Promise of rest. First of all, you notice that people are before the throne. In verse 15, he says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There's a couple of things going on here. One, where, where does the rest happen for the people of God? It happens before the throne of God. That we actually are in the presence of God. And it says they serve him night and day in his temple. Now we know at the end of the book of Revelation there is no temple because God and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, to serve night and day in the temple means simply to serve all the time in the presence of Jesus. Where we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles in John 2, we learned that in John 1 that the Word of God became flesh and did what? Tabernacled among us. That what it means to... to to be in heaven, what it means to experience God, first and foremost and primarily is to experience His presence. To experience His presence. The glory and bliss of heaven has everything to do and almost only to do with being in the presence of Jesus Himself. And the horror of hell has to do with the exact opposite thing. In other words, I think one of the most horrifying passages in the whole Bible is in Matthew chapter 7 when people come up to Jesus and say, did we not cast demons out in your name? And did we not do miracles in your name? And Jesus says to them, what? Depart from me. He doesn't say go to hell. He doesn't consign them to some punishment. He doesn't tell them to do something. The ultimate punishment for people who don't know Jesus is simply, he says, depart from me. Now, do I believe there is a hell? Absolutely. But anything that happens in hell outside being apart from Jesus just, just makes it that much worse. But the worst thing is to be apart from Jesus. And heaven itself is to be in His presence. So what do you like to experience, heaven or hell? The question all has to do with what you do with Jesus. Verse 16, it says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And this, by the way, this whole passage is almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 49. But I want to introduce you to a big theological phrase here. Realized eschatology. You see, when you study the book of Revelation, people say, oh, you're studying eschatology. You are. Eschatology is the study of end times. So what does realized eschatology mean? It means somehow that the end times have been realized right now. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that it is full of what I'm called realized eschatology. Because the promise of heaven is what? First thing, they shall hunger no more. 
Can you think of any place in the New Testament that Jesus says that? John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus, pe- people are longing for bread because Jesus has just done a miracle. And they say, give us more of that bread. And Jesus says what? I am the bread. Anyone who feeds upon me will never be hungry again. He doesn't say if you wait until you get to heaven, you're gonna, not going to be hungry. So trust me now, gut it out, and someday you won't experience that anymore. People come to Jesus longing for bread, and he says, I come and bring you the true bread from heaven. I am that bread. And if you feed upon me, you'll never be hungry. That's right now. That is realized right now. So the promise of heaven, it can actually be realized right now. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is, is the woman at the well. Jesus asks her for a drink. And then he says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. And they banter back and forth. And Jesus basically says, whoever drinks from the water I give will what? Never be thirsty again. He doesn't say sometime in the future. He doesn't say to the woman, you know, if you trust me, this out-of-work rabbi, this carpenter who's standing at a well, Jewish, and you're Samaritan, if you go through all this stuff, gut it out, someday when you get to heaven, you're not going to be thirsty anymore. He says, you drink the what I give you, you won't be thirsty now. Is he talking about bodily? No. Your soul will not thirst. Some of you, I know, you you thirst and you long for affirmation. You long for someone to tell you it's going to be okay. You long for rest. You just long to be satisfied. And Jesus says that is available to you right now. In heaven, it will not only be spiritual, but it will also be physical. In heaven, there will literally be no hunger. There will literally be no thirst. And he says the sun will not strike them down under any scorching heat, no external deprivations. And then verse 17, he says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, on Friday night, having a daughter that graduated, it's sort of weird because you almost feel um, like I'm heading toward empty nesterdom. So Abby was out at some graduation party and Judy and one of my daughters were out at something else. The other daughter, I was completely alone on Friday night. And so I thought, what, what does a pastor do when he's completely alone on Friday night? He comes to his office and gets a, a Puritan book. And I flipped through a guy named Richard Sibbs. The Puritans called him the sweet dropper. I said, I wonder if he has anything to say about heaven. And he did. In volume four, he has a a whole part called A Glance at Heaven, which, by the way, for a Puritan, a glance equals 50 pages of microprint. (laughs) But one of the things he said, among many, was that God always gives us a, a grape in this world. In other words, he doesn't reserve everything for heaven. He gives us a grape or two of Canaan right now to sort of wet our whistle, to to sort of uh, make us long for heaven. On the other hand, he talked a lot about heaven. And what was interesting to me is how he couched heaven in negative terms and negative terms only. And when you read about heaven in the Bible, it's almost always negative. Let me show you a couple positive things first. He says in verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The thief comes to steal and destroy, but I come to give you life abundantly. 
Not sometime way, way in the future, right now. Do you have that? Many of you, maybe most of you are Christians here, and you probably think, you know, I really don't know what that even feels like. You need to deal with Jesus. Because we have it now, but we will have it completely in the end, that the Lamb who was slain will be their shepherd. And it says He will guide them to springs of living water. That's right from Psalm 23. And it says He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And that's where John goes negative. He also did it with the no hunger, no thirst. Why do biblical writers, when they speak about heaven, almost always speak negatively? Paul does the same thing. Look, well, you don't have to turn there. I'll be there already. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul had a vision of heaven. John had a vision of heaven. And yet, why don't they throw us a bone and give us more? Richard Sibbs, I think, captured it. He said the reason that they describe heaven almost always negatively is because to try and describe it positively would never be able to do it justice. In other words, you say, how good is heaven? How big is heaven? How glorious is heaven? I don't know. What I can tell you, no more tears. But is it big? Will, will, there be, will there be rest from my labors? There will be. What's it going to be like? You're never going to be hungry again. You ever do that to your kids? Where you don't know even what you're going to tell them. But what you can tell them is you're not going to be hungry. You're not going to be thirsty. There's going to be no more tears. I mean, think about that. When I, as I go, went through this passage, I couldn't help but think of all the people in my life that I've known who have died. Since I've been here, dozens of people we have done memorial services for, and we weep. And now as I read this, I weep almost more for myself. That's what I want. Don't you? How glorious is it going to be? I don't know. But what I do know is the, the tribulations and trials of this life, the deprivations of this life, all the things that make it difficult here will not be there. And Paul went so far as to say, it will be so glorious that your eye cannot even see it, ear has not heard, nor your heart cannot even imagine. Think about that. That all comes in and through the person of Jesus, our heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that as we continue to look at the book of Revelation, that we wouldn't be afraid or, or scared by it, but we would be encouraged by it. That it was not given to us in order to intimidate us, but it was given to us in order to, to bring us out of our shell, to enable us to worship and to glory in the gospel as we engage in the world around us. I pray that you would have us do that. Father, I pray even for small things like VBS, Vacation Bible School, that it would be great and it would be glorious and it would be indicative of all the different people that are in our community. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.